So, as I said, we're looking at Leviticus 3. We're looking at what's called the peace offering. I want to point out to you first the basic structure of the chapter. You may have heard, as I just read it, that it's repetitive. Verses 1 to 5 speak about the offerings of cattle. Verses 6 to 11 speak about offerings of sheep. And verses 12 to 17 speak of offerings of goats. And basically, it's the same process, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes irrespective of whether it's cattle or sheep or goats which are offered. And so there's repetition in the chapter. You will also notice that the title of the chapter, if you have an ESV Bible, English Standard Version, is Laws for the Peace Offerings. If you have a King James Version, you'll find that the uh, offering is also called a peace offering. This is uh, typical. Um, a typical translation of the Hebrew phrase. But there is some debate about how exactly we should translate the Hebrew phrase, which the ESV or the King James bring across to us in English as peace offering. Gordon Wenham, who is a commentator, says, quote, For many years, scholars have debated the function of the peace offering. Even today, there is no consensus about the most appropriate way to translate the Hebrew term. Recent suggestions include shared offering or fellowship offering, concluding sacrifice, covenant sacrifice. For our purposes tonight, and not to be quirky, let's stick with peace offering, which is the standard translation of the term. Uh, it was uh, the standard translation. It was the translation of the ESV's predecessor, the King James, which was the dominant translation in English for a long period of time before modern translations came around. And our, even our ESV, which we use typically here at CRBC, also translates it as peace offering. So let's just, let's just stick with that term. But I mentioned the difficulty in finding the right term because the term, in this case doesn't seem to give us an intuitive sense of what the sacrifice was about. So we might think, for example, okay, well, we're looking at the peace offering. So this is probably the offering that brought the Israelites peace with God or peace with each other by making some kind of atonement. But it's not. So simply considering the term peace offering doesn't actually help us at all to understand what this offering uh, actually is. It doesn't help us arrive at a compelling conclusion about what this sacrifice is. Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't help us at all. I should say it's not, it's not an open and shut case. It's not black and white exactly what this offering is, simply by virtue of considering the uh, terminology. Say, by contrast, next week, God willing, we will look at the sin offerings, and I think it will be more intuitive what that sermon will be about, and what those offerings are for. In other words, you offer them when you sin. But when we think about peace offering, we don't automatically and intuitively get it. So that's why I mentioned the difficulty of finding the right term. So to understand what this peace offering is, we will instead have to look at its description and its function in Israelite life. So let's begin with an overview of what actually happens in this offering. 
Again, as I, as I mentioned, the offering might be cattle or sheep or goats. That's the basic breakdown of this chapter. If it's cattle, then this. If it's sheep, then this. If it's goats, then this. But the instructions are basically the same, regardless of whether it's cattle or sheep or goats. The worshiper bringing the offering kills it at the entrance of the tabernacle. So in the outer court, which is the easternmost section of the tabernacle. So you enter from the east going westward, and right in that outer court there, that's where this sacrifice is killed. And then the priests sprinkle the blood against the sides of the altar. And the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver are offered up to God. And uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that point tonight. There's some speculation about why the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver are offered up to God. Um, the fat most likely is because it was considered to be the best portion. So, it, so you think about the phrase, the fat of the land, right? And you understand that this is uh, symbolically offered up to God because God deserves the best. And so as we sang earlier, God's not hungry. God doesn't need us to come and feed him. In the worship of God, we're not being benevolent to God. God is being benevolent to us and more on this later. So it's not as if God's hungry and needs us to bring him food. But the fat is symbolically offered up to God because it is the best. Now, some theologians think that the kidneys are likewise offered up to God for the same reason. Because the kidneys actually used to be considered the seat of our uh, emotions and our innermost being. So the way that we might say, uh, we know it by heart. Or, you know, my heart, my heart is telling me this or that. In the old days, it used to be like, man, I feel this down in my kidneys. Right? And so it was, some people think that the kidneys were offered up here because it symbolizes that um, the best innermost part of ourselves ought to be offered up to God. Another hypothesis is that apparently the kidneys and the liver were used in um, pagan uh, worship and divination, trying to understand metaphysical mysteries through divination by using animal sacrifices, specifically the uh, kidneys and the liver and this kind of stuff. And so the Israelites weren't to eat these things, which the pagans ate as part and parcel of their pagan divination. We're not 100% sure, to be honest. So let's leave it at that for tonight. But suffice it to say, the fat, the kidneys, the liver, they were offered up to God, burnt up. And Leviticus 11, 20, pardon me, Leviticus 7, 11 to 21, teaches us that the worshiper offered it with loaves and wafers, which were the priest's portions, along with the breast and the right thigh. And so, like we have seen already, the priests had their, earned their keep by performing all of the ceremonies and the, the rituals and the sacrifices at the temple. And so God benevolently made provision for these guys who worked at the tabernacle to eat by virtue of giving them a portion of all the sacrifices. And so the loaves and the wafers that were brought with this offering were the priest portion. And so they got their uh, carbs, and then the breast and the right thigh 
uh, were also the priest portion, which gave them their protein. And so God provided for their diet uh, through these sacrifices. But what's interesting in this sacrifice is that the majority of this sacrifice would be eaten by the worshiper and his party, his companions, whether his family or his friends or, you know, the people who worked for him uh, in his household or, you know, you could go presumably with another family or, you know, your friends or whatever. There's no restrictions on who this could be. But basically the worshiper and his party are allowed to eat the rest of it. The animal would not be entirely burnt up in the peace offering as it was in the burnt offering, nor would it be eaten mostly by the priest, but it was eaten mostly by the worshiper and his party. I mentioned Leviticus 7 a few moments ago, and Leviticus 7 also teaches us, or gives us, three reasons why someone might offer up a peace offering. In Leviticus 7.12, we read that someone might offer up a peace offering out of thanksgiving. And in verse 16 of Leviticus 7, we read that someone might offer it to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering. So let's think this through. Perhaps someone had a good harvest. Or perhaps God gave someone a child or someone got married or whatever else. Someone might say to his loved ones, Let's go offer a peace offering and eat it together at the tabernacle. Likewise, someone might vow, next harvest, I'm going to go down to the tabernacle and offer a peace offering. Or when my child is born, I'm going to go down and do this. Or, you know, as soon as the Lord blesses me with, you know, another bunch of sheep or something, I'm going to take one of them down and offer it as a peace offering. So these vows that people might make. Right? When this happens, then I'm going to go ahead and do this. God expected His people, when they said such things, not to just make empty promises, but to keep their vows. And then finally, someone might just decide, according to Leviticus 7, 16, for any reason whatsoever, hey, let's go up to the tabernacle and offer up a peace offering and eat it together there. It is important that we understand. We've seen what happened. We've seen the reasons why people might offer it. It is important now at this juncture that we understand the meal was to be a joyful celebration before the Lord. Deuteronomy 12, 5-7 makes this explicit. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. In other words, the tabernacle and later the temple, which was a more permanent structure as opposed to the tent, which was set up and dismantled as the people traveled around in pilgrim existence. When they settled in the land, the tabernacle gave way to the permanent structure of the temple. This is the place that Deuteronomy 12 is talking about. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. You and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. God actually commanded that His people rejoice before Him as they offered up their sacrifices. 
Now, if it was the burnt offering, and you watched the whole precious animal go up in smoke, the entire thing burnt up. Look, common sense tells us that you have to be more mature in the faith and more pious to rejoice in that sacrifice because you lose it all, earthly speaking, or speaking in earthly terms. But note here that it wouldn't actually be that hard to go with your friends or your family and have a feast before the Lord. So when it comes to the peace offering, it's very different in its nature than the burnt offering. The burnt offering is, you know, let's take this, let's take this animal and go burn it up entirely before the Lord. We'll lose it. Speaking in earthly terms. The peace offering, on the other hand, is let's slaughter this and feast together before the Lord. It's a very different kind of sacrifice. And I said it would be a feast before the Lord because after all, that's what was symbolized by eating at the tabernacle. If you lived in, this, in that day and age, somewhere far away from the Israelites, and you were talking with someone and you said, you know, where does, where does this God live? You might say, oh, you, you know, that God lives among the Ammonites. Where does this God live? Oh, that God lives among the Philistines. You said, where, where does Yahweh live? Yahweh lives among the Israelites. And where specifically does Yahweh live? At the tabernacle. It was his house. And so, when the people would go and offer up this sacrifice and feast, they were feasting in the Lord's house. They were eating together in the presence of the Lord at his house. So you give this offering to God. This peace offering. And then God turns around and gives it right back to you. To enjoy. Thus, you're feasting not only with your friends or your family, whoever you came with to the tabernacle, but you're also feasting with God. After all, it's His food you're eating. Before you eat it, you have offered it up to God. You gave it to Him. It's His table then. It's His house. Look here and see the benevolence of God. God is not a hungry God that needs us to be benevolent to Him. We are hungry people. And God knows it. And He provides for us to feast with Him in His house, at His table. He commands that we come and eat with Him. And that we rejoice. Think about what a not burdensome commandment this is. What a benevolent God would give Leviticus chapter 3 to His people. Listen, one of the things that I want you to do is every so often bring an animal down and go with your family and go with some friends and have a feast at my house. At my table. And rejoice there. I want, you to, I want you to come over. And visit me. Bring, bring something. 
Offer it to me and then I'm going to turn around and offer it back to you. For you to eat. In view of all this, perhaps something like a fellowship offering might be a better term, as, as Wenham suggests, possibly that could be an appropriate translation of the Hebrew phrase. Maybe that would strike at the heart of the celebration in a more intuitive way. If the chapter heading of Leviticus 3 in our ESV Bibles said laws about fellowship offerings, maybe we would understand it a little bit more intuitively. But if we stick with peace offering, and we understand peace, not just as the absence of war or the absence of conflict, but in a broader ancient Jewish understanding of peace, shalom, then peace offering or shalom offering might actually be a really excellent term. Not because this feast achieves shalom, not, just, not because this sacrifice is the basis of shalom, but it seems to me that the feast with your loved ones and with God was a moment in which everything was inherently good and joyful. It was a little oasis of shalom or peace in the midst of the difficulties of life. There's a lot of things going on at any given moment in anyone's life. But just like you might say, look, I'm going to worry about that tomorrow. Tonight we're going to feast. Right? This, was, this was the kind of thing that the peace offering was. Yeah, sure, there are all these stresses and all these difficulties. But look, let's go down to the house of the Lord and have a feast now. We'll worry about that later. The peace offering was a foretaste and an anticipation of the fellowship that we will all have with God around His table in His house forevermore. It was this oasis in the midst of everything and it was this foretaste and this anticipation that that was, that was the end for which God's people were brought into relationship with Him. Not so that they would be miserable. Not so that they would be burdened. Not so that they would be bereft. But so that they would enjoy joyful fellowship with God and with each other because of God's benevolence. Because of God's provision for them. And so, the peace offering was not only an oasis in the midst of the difficulties of life, and the little oasis of shalom, but it was also a foretaste and an anticipation of a greater and better fellowship that we will all have with God around His table in His house forevermore. Corroborating this understanding, Wenham says, directly related to the Old Testament peace offering is the Lord's Supper. After all, the Lord's Supper is also this little oasis, isn't it? Of shalom in the midst of the difficulties of life. As we ate and as we drank this morning, were there no problems in your life? Well, of course there were. 
Everything that was going on yesterday was still going on this morning. Everything that's still weighing on your mind about tomorrow was still happening this morning. But in that moment, when we're all gathered around the Lord's table, it's this little oasis, being with God and being with God's people. That's a little oasis of shalom in the midst of it all. And the Lord's Supper is not just a little... That's not as good as it gets. It's not like, yes, in, in... in heaven, we'll get these little cups of grape juice and these little pieces of bread. And that's as, that's as good as it gets, man. We'll sit on these little wooden benches and eat. Not to, not to make a mockery of the Lord's table, but simply to say, in and of itself, there is something sweet about it. There is something precious about it. But at the same time, in and of itself, it's not that awesome. There's this symbolism that is, that is rich and that is powerful, and that actually is what makes it an oasis. It's because it points away from itself to something better that it becomes actually so rich in the taking and in the participating. And what does it anticipate? It anticipates fellowship that we will all have with God around His table in His house forevermore. And so it symbolizes then and anticipates actually the same thing that the peace offering anticipated so long ago. Wenham states that Christ's death on the cross is a closer parallel of the burnt offering in which the sacrifice was totally consumed. But he says... Christ's sharing of His body and blood with His disciples forms the closer parallel to the peace offering. Christ giving Himself for us to eat, for us to drink, in communion with one another and with God Himself. It's amazing to me just how central seeing this in the the peace offering And having seen this already in the furniture that was inside the holy place, it's amazing to me just how central this idea of eating and drinking with God in His house, in His presence, at His table is. By by way of brief review, for those of you who who missed that sermon on the tabernacle furniture in in the holy place, there was a lampstand and there was a table with bread on it. And as we, you can go listen to it, all of our sermons are online, so I, I, I can't rehash it at great length. But what we saw is that this was symbolic of God preparing a table for us in His house, in a place where He Himself is the light, as the lampstand represents Christ. And when we think about eating with God, in a place where He Himself is the light. This should also make our minds and our hearts go to Revelation, where we read that there was no need of the sun or of the moon, for God Himself was the light of that place. We see here again in the peace offering, God say, hey, eat with me at my table, in my house. Let me give you of my food. And rejoice. See, this is where it's all going. 
in the, at the end of all things when Christ returns and the impenitent are gathered out of His kingdom. And God makes all things new. We will eat and we will drink with God. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will eat and we will drink in a place where God Himself is our light. It will be God's benevolence to us, not our benevolence to Him, that is the basis of the feast. God has no need that we could satisfy, but we have great need that God will satisfy. And God has brought all of this. God has promised to bring all of this to pass in and through Christ Jesus, whose body and blood were broken and shed for us. And so the peace offering anticipates or corresponds to the Lord's table. And both are are pictures and anticipations of of a greater feast, a greater eating and drinking with God that is to come in the restoration of all things. By way of application, just as the Israelites ought to have participated in the peace offering in a worthy manner, they could not eat it while they were unclean, according to Leviticus 7.20. So we also must participate in the Lord's table in a worthy manner, according to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. There needs to be a a sobriety and a a gravity to the partaking and a a thoughtful preparation. And and our hearts need to be oriented correctly as we eat and as we drink. The worship of the Lord is serious business. But though the worship of the Lord is serious business, it is also joyful business. As God commands His people of old, look, when you come and you bring your offerings, whether it's the burnt offering or whether it's the peace offering, rejoice. And it's possible to be serious and rejoice at the same time. We don't have to either be silly and trivial and cavalier and whatever to be joyful. Or if we're going to be serious, we better get miserable. You can actually be serious and joyful at the same time. And it is this wonderful thing to eat and to drink of Christ's body and blood broken and shed for us week after week, Lord's Day by Lord's Day with Christ's people and with Christ Himself. And the Scriptures tell us that He is present with us, that we are participating in Christ as we eat and as we drink. It's inherently presently joyful. It's a little oasis of joy in the midst of the difficulties of life. But part of what makes it an oasis of joy is that we understand that it foreshadows and anticipates something greater than itself. And so there is not only inherent present joy in the partaking, but there's also anticipation of greater joy. That one day all things will be made new. And that we will feast in the house of Zion that we will eat and we will drink with God in His presence, in a place where He Himself is the light, where He Himself has provided the meal. We are invited to gather around His table. There is a great feast 
coming. What a feast it will be. What grace that we are invited to be guests. The condescension and the benevolence of God to His people of old was astounding. His condescension to us in giving us a better covenant which is not conditional upon our faithfulness. But as Tevin pointed out earlier, secures for us the blessings promised in it by the faithfulness of our covenantal representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. What grace, what condescension. Each of us cries with thankful times. Lord, why was I a guest? The worship of the Lord is serious. The worship of the Lord is at the same time joyful. It is a participation in the benevolence and the condescension of God to us, which is expressed most fully and completely and ultimately in the person and in the work of Christ Jesus.